0: This is Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. Your host, Carl Valeri, has over a decade of experience counseling pilots. Aviation Careers Podcast will help you navigate towards your aviation career goal. Here is your host, Carl Valeri. Welcome to Episode 23. You know, I spent a few days dropping my business card off at flight schools and fixed base operators and I've come to the striking conclusion. Airports and flight schools can be the worst place to go if you want advice on becoming an airline pilot. Let me explain. I like to leave cards at airports, so those interested in an aviation career will learn from the interviews and the advice that we provide on this show. After speaking with various people at numerous airports, I received some really diverse reactions to the podcast that I do. You know, when I'm speaking with those that have been in the industry for a really long time, I usually hear this comment, quote, I hope you're telling pilots to get out of the aviation and do something that really makes money. But when I speak with newer pilots that are excited about their new career in aviation, I get a completely opposite reaction. Most new pilots are, quote unquote, interested in hearing what I have to say on the podcast because they can't wait to move their careers forward. You know what? I can't blame these newbies in the industry with all this negative feedback they get from their employers and, you know, their boss in the flight school and those around them. And I could see why they would want to move forward. But, you know, to to help you understand the challenges of being an airline pilot, to understand the comments that, that were made by these people, that, the old people in the industry, the people that are, are, are have been around a while. You know, I wanted to give you some of the negatives uh, that I've heard from these people and other pilots I've spoken to over the decades of flying. And I've compiled a list, and tonight I'm going to share this list with you. It's called the top 10 reasons you should not become an airline pilot. So you can decide for yourself if this career is for you. If the top 10 reasons I lay out here are negatives that in your mind, you know, they're not negatives, they're positives actually, and you can handle them, then you're you're a good candidate to become an airline pilot. But before we do that, uh, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Audible. It's important to keep motivated and informed when you're pursuing a career. One of the best ways to increase your knowledge and keep motivated is to listen to books during your downtime, such as commuting to work, running on a treadmill, or walking through the park. One of the great things about Audible is that the first book is free and there's no obligation to continue the subscription. You can cancel at any time and keep the book. Audible helps support this website and I encourage you to visit Audible at aviationcareerspodcast.com audible. There are many great books you can listen to, with one of my favorites being 48 Days to the Work You Love by Dan Miller. I encourage you to discover your true potential and keep motivated by listening to audiobooks. Again, you can download your first book for free by clicking on the Audible icon or by going to AviationCareersPodcast.com slash Audible. Well, before we begin our top 10 list of reasons why you should not become an airline pilot, I want to ask you a favor. If you're an airline pilot and you're listening to this podcast, I invite you to write in with your own list of the top 10 reasons you should or you should not become airline An airline pilot. You know, I'll I'll include those in upcoming episodes because I I really want to hear from you. But today we're also going to be spending uh, some time answering a lot of the questions that have come in, uh, sent through email and also uh, some voicemails that I've had sent in. And To help me out with this list of questions and the list of top 10 reasons you should not become an airline pilot and to give us another perspective, I have a special guest with me. I have uh, Tom Wachowski, and Tom was actually a guest on episode 14, and he helped us understand what it's like to be a corporate pilot and the corporate aviation careers. Hey, welcome back to uh, Aviation Careers Podcast, Tom. Yeah. Hi, Carl.
1: Thanks uh, for having me back. I uh, re- really appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Th- you know, that that was great. I've, I've gotten a lot of great feedback from the episode where you talked about corporate flying. And as a matter of fact, today you were uh, doing some of that flying. Uh, you know, if you want to share, wh- where are you today and, and where have you flown lately? That's really exciting.
1: Yeah. So today uh, I'm on the East Coast and uh, an easy trip that we, we came up here from the Southwest to the East Coast and we'll go back tomorrow. And uh, we've had some, you know, in in our in our flight department, we, we airplanes are used strictly for business, so we don't do any family flying, we don't do any pleasure flying. So that what that means is that a lot of our trips are to places where we go in and our passengers do their work and we get out. So there's not a lot of downtime on a lot of our trips, and so uh, you know, I think of a recent trip we did out to California, which not having a lot of downtime, but enough to go sit on the beach for an hour and just. Uh, enjoy that. You know, and that. And that's worth it to me. I, I, I like that. And the, the other big one we had uh, recently or that that I had was I was able to go home. We had a trip up to Michigan where I'm from. And so that was really cool to go. I went and saw some friends and uh, uh, that I didn't get to see when I was up there this summer. And I actually drove by uh, where I grew up. So that was kind of neat. So once in a while you get lucky and you get to go sit on a beach or you get to go home.
0: Well, that's cool. They, I just, the, the thing I guess about your job is you, you don't actually get to spend a lot of time sometimes in those neat destinations, but at others you do. And that, that's cool. That's really neat. You know, I, uh, I know some friends that are corporate pilots that they actually have spent, I, I remember one guy said he spent four days like in Bahamas or something like that and went golfing yeah. every day. That's cool. That's pretty neat. That's something you can't do as an airline pilot. That's true. <laughs> But uh well that's great, Tom. And I you know, I appreciate your coming in today and, and relating some of the information you have. Now, just so that we're gonna go over a top ten list uh, of why you should not become an airline pilot. And Tom's gonna help us out because Tom, you you actually have experience, right, as an airline pilot?
1: Yeah, so I spent four and a half almost five years, uh about four and a half, almost five years with uh with an airline on the East Coast with a regional uh, who's now defunct, who's now gone. But um, you know, I'm real interested in this list because I think that it's going to be very applicable. You know, I can relate it to the time that I spent in the airlines and I think it be very applicable and useful for somebody who's considering the airlines. So this will be good.
0: Yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. This is something new for us. And, and what I'm going to do is go through this list and I'm going to mention the, the different things that I have found from the people I've talked to, what's on the top ten list and the suggestions that other people have written in. And I'm also going to put on. I'll have a little commentary, and then I'm going to ask Tom to, to make a statement there, too, about each of these. So let's get going. Let's take a look at the top 10 reasons you should not become an airline pilot. And the number one reason is you want to be home every night, and that's something that you're not going to do as an airline pilot. And I know that a lot of folks out there that listen to this podcast are going to say, Well, Carl, you had somebody on your show who's an airline pilot that's actually home every night. And I'll tell you what. He is the number one pilot at that airline, okay? So he is able to get what's called day trips. That is very abnormal. You are not going to be home every night. As a matter of fact, normally what happens in the place that I work is that we go away for four days on a trip. Of course, that's three nights. So you're going to be gone. So you leave Monday. You're not coming home till Thursday, and you're going to be in a hotel room. Tom, is that what you've experienced? Yeah, and you know, the only thing I would add to that is a
1: lot of airline pilots don't live in their bases, and I remember when I was in the airlines, I lived in Arizona and commuted to Chicago and D.C., and often, that added another night away from home.
0: Good point. Great point. Uh, You know, I also am a commuter, and a lot of times I need to go up a day before and leave a day after, so when I said three nights, there's times where I'm actually away from home five nights, not actually three nights, because I'm 1,000 miles from where I work. Great point, Tom. Well, our number two on our list is you don't like sleeping in hotel rooms. Well, you know what? That's where we basically live is in hotel rooms. Now, I, on the other hand... And I'll be honest with you, I actually really like hotel rooms. It's going to sound a little weird, but you know, I can go in there and I can mess it up. I could do what I want. I can throw my socks on the floor and not have to worry about anybody yelling me at me to pick it up. But, but there's a lot of people that have problems sleeping in, in, in other rooms and in, in hotel rooms. Um, you know, and, and Tom, I'm sure you spent quite a few nights in hotel rooms.
1: Yeah, lucky enough to be platinum at Marriott right now, even even in the corporate career, which means that you, you spend a lot of nights in hotel rooms. Uh, but, you know, something interesting there, number two to add, though, I remember as an airline guy, um, there were times when I was commuting that I got stuck, and it wasn't so much the hotel room that I got stuck at. It was stuck at an airport during my commute, and I can count on more than two hands the number of times I spent the night in Vegas Airport or Chicago, you know, O'Hare, because I missed my commute. Uh and slept in the airport, so it 's not only hotel rooms to think about, but if you don't like sleeping in airports that 's something to consider if you 're not going to live at home or live in your base rather
0: well that's that's a really good point is you know if you don 't uh, and, and again uh commuting i've spent a few nights just laying there in in a in an airport in those really comfortable chairs I'm, I'm being facetious there and uh, boy it, it can be it can be a pain the other thing too I think people don 't realize when you 're sleeping in a hotel, you know those points that you get with the hotels. As a as a airline pilot, you usually don't get points because they've already negotiated a lower rate. But I think right. in the corporate you do, right?
1: Uh, I found that the it, normally you do. It's very rare for the corp uh, for the company to take take your points. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't think I've ever run into anybody actually that that didn't. Wasn't platinum status as a corporate
0: pilot. <laughs> wow, and that's that's some pretty cool perks you get as a platinum. A little bit better room, a little bit uh, sometimes free meals, that type of
1: thing. Yeah, you, yeah, it is. You, you, you feel like you're somebody, you know. <laughs> they, they, when you call, they answer with your name, and that's kind of neat.
0: That is cool. Well, number three on our list is uh, if you're someone that needs a lot of rest and you can't imagine working a sixteen-hour day. Being an airline pilot is not for you because that's the legal limit, 16 hours in a day. And, uh, you know, it's funny because Tom actually has experienced this. But now Tom's flying corporate, and I think you have some uh, other rules there too, don't you?
1: Yeah, I mean, we as a 91 operator, we we don't uh, technically – the, the rules are, you know, the, what we do is we follow an airline rule, and we actually skin that down to where it's crew decision. So I can think of one example where we had a trip, and we went way out into the uh, into the West Indies, and then back to, you know, from the West Coast to the West Indies, and then back to the East Coast of the United States in one day. And, and we, at the end of that trip, uh, had a meeting and said, that's not happening again, and refined our operations manual so that Sure, we've got, you know, duty limits that we follow which are the same as as an airline operator. We just adopt those. But we we've uh, gone a bit further to say if the crew is if if, we, if if the crew feels tired, they have the authority to stop the trip. So and and and, and that's we're lucky to have that.
0: Oh, sure. You know, in the airlines, you can only fly 16 hours or only work 16 hours and then you're done. I say only. And boy, that's a, that's a long day. It is. And, uh, it, re- it really can be. And that's a stressful day too, doing all those different legs. So if you need a lot of rest, this, cause think about this, you can get 16 hours and then you only get eight hours of rest and you got to do it again the next day. So that, that's, that's a lot of work. The uh, number four on our list is you want to make a large income right away. One industry where you're going to pay your dues is the airline industry. And you're not going to make a lot of money right away. You might if you sell the airplanes, but not if you're going to fly them. And I think that applies not just to the airline world, but I think to the corporate world also
1: yeah I would agree with that i mean it's it is um it's literally earning your wings you know the first year the first couple of years and uh, that oftentimes will keep people in jobs too you know you, you may want um, you may find that you get into an airline job or you get into a corporate job and get tired of it and you want to maybe you know get some new experience and find something new to do and one reason that you may be nervous and fearful to do that is
0: starting over with the income it's it can be painful oh sure and and that leads us into the the next reason that you should not become an airline pilot is that you want to change jobs often in most careers, and I've had a career in computers before this where I would change jobs and each time I change jobs, I would make more money doesn't happen with the airlines. The seniority is based on the date you're hired. you start all over again at the bottom of the seniority list, so if you were making you know six figure income at one airline, you change to the next airline. You could probably be making thirty thousand dollars a year and have to wait many years to make that six figure income again.
1: Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. It's uh, it just goes back to earning, you know, earning your wings essentially in that probationary period in those first couple of
0: years. Now, number six on my list is you want holidays off, and I tell you what, it took me seven years to finally get holidays off and be guaranteed. I have Thanksgiving and Christmas off this year, and that's pretty cool. Most people. They don't get those holidays off. So if you want holidays off, you are not gonna get it. As an airline pilot, even as a senior one, you may not get holidays off. Yeah, that that that's a
1: big one I think that you don't learn in flight school. And and I remember being single and you know, pursuing my airline career and I didn't care. Uh I didn't care about working Thanksgiving, working Christmas. It didn't matter. And then, you know, I got married, and, and the married pilots can relate to this. And then we had kids, and the parent pilots can relate to this. And suddenly, those days are quite important. And I think the older you get, uh, you know, Carl, you've flown with guys who who probably are nearing the end of their career, and you see this with them, is that the older you get, the more important those days become. And if you want them off, it's going to be a while in the airlines.
0: Yeah luckily some of the older guys they they do get those days off cuz they've been there for a long time but yeah. uh, but even still you know if the schedule changes you're going to be working that holiday yeah. it, it's happened to me I mean mm-hmm. I a perfect example last year supposed to have christmas off christmas eve they say hey we need you to fly a flight and you'll get back on christmas day halfway through the day and i just made it to the meal so that that definitely can happen and you know what you just said about being with your family leads into my number 7 uh, reason you shouldn't become or you, you shouldn't not become an airline pilot is you want to see your family every day and you know what it's not going to happen.
1: That's true and 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 you know I think that maybe even goes for being a pilot in general. I mean there I mean you could probably count on one hand how many guys you know that have a flying position where they're home with their family every day. I mean I know in the corporate world, you know, I I uh, my son just signed up and he's doing gymnastics on Mondays and I took a look at the calendar it's a four week course. I'm going to miss every one, and, and hey, it's just the way it goes. So that's true in the airlines as well as corporate.
0: And you know, it's funny because there are some jobs that you can do flying that uh, that you would be home every day, but they're few and far between. Uh, I guess an example is I have a friend that he flies a steerman. And, uh, he doesn't even talk on the radio, but he's home every day. <laughs> limited range. <laughs> yeah, limited range. <laughs> so there, there is one example, but no, if you're going to fly for the airlines, you're, you're definitely not going to be, be home every day if you're going to actually fly at the airlines. Uh, the number eight reason you should not become an airline pilot, you don't work well under pressure. And I tell you what, the airlines, there's a lot of pressures on the pilot. And in, in my world, there's there's three reasons or there's three areas where I get the most pressure, and the biggest one is getting off the gate. Once that door is closed, it's like, oh, gosh, this is great. You have to get the bags on. You're coordinated with a, a ramp agent. You have somebody in the back that's giving the flight attendant a hard time. You have all these different issues. Just when you get in the air, it's just a real relaxing environment. The only time in the air things get kind of uh, sticky is when you have an emergency or you have to divert somewhere because there's, there's some really bad weather or flying through bad weather.
1: Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. And and I think especially, you know, Carl, as a captain, your pressure level is different. Uh, maybe you, you can note on this is different than the guy sitting in the right seat. I, mean, I remember being an FO, especially in the beginning. And, uh, you know, as you learn about flying and crew environments in the beginning, I remember just, hey, this is cool. You know, we're this is easy and no big deal. And then I remember moving to the left seat and wow, what a difference what is in in so many different aspects of the job pressure went up for sure
0: oh sure and i know uh, the airline i work for they actually have a a class on how to be a captain and there's all these other things that that are put in there i mean that things that you would never think of you know hey you know flight attendant calls say hey i have a pig running up and down the aisle <laughs> You know, what do we, what do you do? Uh, you know, you got an engine on fire. You have somebody who has a medical emergency in the back and you can't find an airport to land at that's close by. You know, those type of things. So you really have to, you have to be able to, to work well under pressure. And I, and the, there's a, a personality there that can do that. Uh, I think you're right. And there's a lot more pressures once you do a, upgrade. Uh, so you have to be of the mindset that you'll be able to handle those type of pressures. Well, the number nine reason, uh, that you don't, you should not become an airline pilot is, You're afraid of being tested continually just to keep your job. Now, uh, I just finished two weeks of training, and I had to do ground school, and then I had to go in the simulator. And during that training, I I had a test like almost every day. And during this, this training period, if I was to fail a test... There's a, they might retrain me, but there's a possibility I could lose my job. And there's a possibility with that, plus you're tested uh, physically, you have a, a medical exam. So, you know, if you, you're not used to being tested all the time, as a matter of fact, I counted how many tests I take a year, and it's actually, there's, it it's averages one a month uh, that I have to take a total of 12 exams.
1: Yeah, there, there is a lot just to stay current in the 121 world and the airline world. And, you know, a lot of that is leaking over to corporate where we're seeing more and more testing happen. You know, not only in the airplane, like you mentioned, uh, but you also touched on physical. Uh, you know, a lot of corporate flight departments are putting more emphasis on the health of their pilots and uh, therefore, you know, doing more tests. I know we do tests at the Mayo Clinic. That's part of our gig and. And that is stressful, and so you go back to the airline world where you may have maybe not that level at the medical yet, though I think it might be coming in the future. But the continual systems testing and and, and you know and, and the unwritten test of just being in the position—I mean, it's a lot of work physically and more so mentally that can test you just doing the job.
0: Yeah, good point. I mean, and and you are—it's like you're being tested on a daily basis. That's for sure. So yeah, this is these are the top ten reasons that that uh, most people that I've talked to over the years is that have said that these are ten reasons you should not become an airline pilot. Now if these are things that don't really bother you or you think you can deal with, uh then you know, you're a good candidate for being, becoming an airline pilot. And I'd love to hear from other people uh, what their top 10 reasons are not to become an airline pilot. And also, I want to hear hear what what are the reasons you should become an airline pilot, because we're going to do another episode. We're going to give you the top 10 reasons you should become an airline pilot. But I think it's important to, to look at those things and, and be truthful with yourself. If these are things that you can't handle, uh, I talked to a recruiter at one of the regional airlines recently, and she said to me that a lot of times they'll find career changers have the toughest time because they've, all their life been at home with their family, and now they've changed, and they can't handle it. Sometimes they leave the airline within six months after getting hired. So look at this list, and I'll have it online at aviationcareerspodcast.com, dot com, and uh, just look at that and, and be truthful with yourself. Can I do this? You know, is this something I want to do?
1: Yeah, and, and you know, I think you could almost treat that as a checklist. You know, as you're looking into the career, is is you know going down that list and uh, making sure that it
0: does fit. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's a, that was an interesting discussion there. But one of the things that I want to do on, on this episode is not just give you some of the negatives. Now we're going to get into the positive and happy stuff. We have a lot of listener mail. And you know I apologize uh, for not getting to these earlier, but I've been actually without power for a couple of weeks. We had a, a hurricane, Sandy, and it really wiped us out for a while. Uh, but I was able to get an episode out last week finally uh, and uh, this coming week, this, this episode. I really appreciate Tom taking the time to help me out with this. Um, and we're going to get started here uh, with our first listener mail it's uh It comes from Ron, and one thing uh, I do want to mention, if you do send me an email, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put that on the website, aviationcareerspodcast.com. You'll be able to see the questions there, and I will edit these for your privacy and some other editorial reasons uh, that will pull out some of the information. We want to kind of de-identify who you are uh, to keep your privacy, so if you're going to send your name in, I'm not going to put that in here, Uh, but I do—I think these these, uh, questions are really important, and some are really terrific. Anyway, getting back to Ron. John's question. First, his comment, uh, I've only recently discovered your podcast. I appreciate the fresh perspective your episodes deliver. His first question is, uh, for those who may not be able to fly with an airline or may have a restriction on their medical for color vision deficiency with a, quote, not valid for night flying or by color signal control, unquote, what other flying jobs are there aside from perhaps agriculture? or flying patrol or daytime charters and one of the things that always comes to mind uh, is that one of the things that you you could do is like some type of flying on your own you can do aerial photography there's a lot of things out there but one of the things that I've always told people is that they really need to talk to their aviation medical examiner and 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 discuss with them who they have in their office that has a color deficiency and actually works in the field of aviation and ask you know their experiences with that because everybody's is different in their experience and it's best to have a really senior medical examiner to talk to uh Tom do you know anybody who's flying that has a color deficiency you know i had a
1: a friend who had uh a color deficiency on his medical and i don't know what degree it went to but i do know he does Fly today in the left seat for a regional airline, and, and and I don't know how he got to that, and what the degree you know of his color deficiency was, but that's a tough one for sure to uh, to get around in this career as far as opportunities go.
0: Yeah, it depends on the level of color deficiency. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's that's important to note too, because gosh, I mean, I know people that have lost an eye and they're flying yeah. to the airlines. So yeah, so yeah, that can happen. Um, and then uh, Ron's next question, he says, uh, "How would one go?" Excuse me. How would one get their foot in the door with these or any other opportunities? Well, of course, the best way is to network, 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 uh, you know, get out there and talk to people. There's a lot of social media, but one of the things, uh, you know, you're not going to get a job by just sitting on a computer. You really need to get out there and bang on doors. You know, I, I think Tom, actually, if you want to relate, has a has kind of an interesting uh, comment on this one.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's essentially you got to become a salesman. And I mean that, I mean that in the highest regard, I mean that in terms, you got to go out and sell yourself. And especially in in, in the way this career is today, whether it's the airlines, whether it's a corporate, whether it's a private individual, you got to go convince them of the value that you can bring. And uh, it's that simple.
0: You know, the uh, the other thing too about say plugging into these aviation as a matter of fact that that is his next question, you know. You know, how does one plug into the aviation quote unquote network and begin making invaluable contacts and that get involved. Get involved in all these aviation organizations, you know, like AOPA, NBAA, National Business Aviation Association. Uh there's a lot of places out there. Even LinkedIn, you know, that's something I've just started looking at because uh I found that you can actually validate other people's um uh you know, what they've done and that type of thing. I forget what they call it on LinkedIn, but I think that's a terrific resource. Now, with that said, you got to watch because I know people that have actually gotten, uh, fired or almost fired because of the things they've done on social media. So that could either help you or it could hurt you in getting a job.
1: Yeah, I think, I think you're right on. I mean, I just this week I was in the local chapter of the uh, NBAA at our airport and, uh, Uh, you know, I met a bunch of people that I never met before that are right down the runway from me. So the networking thing is huge. And I think every airport, big or small, has some type of group. I mean, Carl, I'm sure you've been to this small field that's got, you know, it's a a 3,000 foot strip surrounded by corn. And there's a group, you know, there's a group of guys there. I mean, they're everywhere.
0: And you never know who those people are. Just never discount anybody you see. I mean, I I actually was hanging out with this older gentleman and he had, you know, overalls and was sitting on a, on a tractor cutting the grass. Turns out he's the guy that owned the airport. Yeah. And, uh, he was very helpful in, in getting me, uh, moving on in my career. And you never know.
1: That's funny you mentioned that. I remember being up in, uh, Canada over the summer and a gentleman just like what you described was kind of walking through this kind of rickety old FBO and, And he kind of looked a little sketchy, and I watched him walk out to a hangar where he had a, and I forget what it was, but it was an old uh, twin engine, all shiny, shined, you know, like you could look in the aluminum on the airplane and see yourself. That's how shiny it was. And I forget it was like a Lockheed or something, but a beautiful old airplane he had. And then he also had a Waco in there. And, and if if anybody knows anything about Wacos, you know they started rebuilding those again a couple of years ago. And now the, they've got these new biplane Wacos. They're like IFR approved and all. They're they're really expensive. They're really nice. And this guy walked out to that hangar and we ended up having some time. So I thought, wow, I wonder that's interesting. This sketchy looking fellow walks out to a hangar with some pretty nice airplanes in it. And he's wrenching on one of them. I thought, Oh, he's a mechanic. And I went out there and started talking to him. Those were his airplanes. <laughs> the guy owned a business in town and those were his airplanes. Quite a successful fellow. So there you know, you never know where those
0: connections are. That's a good point. Great point. Well, Ron, thanks for the questions, and uh, if you have any other follow-up questions, send them in, and we're, we're going to be doing another episode like this, so appreciate that. Uh, our next uh, comment question comes from Shane. Uh, Shane says, I started listening to your podcast after your appearance on the Airplane Geeks podcast. At the time, I was a student enrolled in the professional pilot program and working part-time for the school as a veteran-slash-financial-aid advisor. Around this time, our previous flight training provider lost their contract and the new flight school received the contract to conduct the flight training portion of the degree. Word went out that the new flight school was conducting interviews, but since I had not yet received my certified flight instructor certificate, I initially thought that I shouldn't waste my time interviewing. Luckily, I remembered the advice that I heard repeatedly on your podcast, that there's more to aviation careers than just flying. So I went in with my resume and some optimism, hoping the best. The following week, I was contacted by the new flight school, and they informed me they wanted me to be the customer service and admissions manager with a focus on student access. The best part was they agreed to let me start taking on students once I finished my flight instructor certificate. I would have never thought to apply for this job if it weren't for your advice, and I could not be happier with the outcome. I love my new job and look forward to coming to work every day. Thank you, Shane. Shane, that is a terrific story, and I hope everybody learns from that. You never know where one job will lead you. And you, you have to realize there are other jobs in aviation. So say you do let, lose your medical. You know you can back it up with the experience you've had at this school. And I think that's just a, a terrific story. I you know, I get these these all the time. Somebody comes in and says, you know, I'm not old enough to fly but I want to uh work at an airport. Well, you know, you can help out around, clean things, clean airplanes. You might be driving the fuel truck and you might be the next flight instructor at that school. You know, Tom, do you have any comments on that one?
1: No, it sounds to me uh, the only comment I guess I, sh- I would have is it does sound to me like he was networking.
0: Very, very good. I mean that and and I think that's really inspirational for for me too to to hear that people are are not stopping, you know, when they, they see that there's a challenge ahead they don't stop, they keep moving forward, and they they keep trying to to do exactly what it is they want to do. they just keep their their eye on the goal and I think that's really important and Enjoy the ride along the way. I mean, this could be a cool job for a while. What you what he's doing there. So again, thank thanks for that question. If if you have another one, Shane, sure enough, please uh, write in. The next uh, question actually is uh, come. This is a long one now. This is from uh, sh- from James, uh, and he's uh, talking about uh, his job and he's leaving the army. So from James, he writes, uh, "I just recently discovered your podcast, and I really hope to continue to pr- or you continue to produce these in the future." I've been a helicopter pilot in the U.S. Army for the past 16 years, and I'm looking to start a second career in the airlines at the ripe old age of 38. I started flying in 1990 when I was 15. At this time, a Cessna 152 was about $30 an hour and the instructor was $15 an hour. Boy, that was a while ago. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> At that point in time, one could pay for a private pilot certificate with about $2,000. Those days are over. Today, the least expensive airline, or excuse me, airplanes I see rent wet for about $100 an hour and the CFI for $50 an hour. According to the U.S. inflation calculator, $30 in 1990 should be about $53 today, having had a rate of inflation change of 76% over 22 years. Even in 1990, the old-timers were complaining about how much uh, prices have risen since the late 70s and early 80s. So, first question, why has the cost of flight training outpaced inflation by 200% over 20 years and over 300%? Over the past 30 years. Now, my first comment is going to be this. I think that flight instructors are finally starting to get paid what they deserve because they're out there really busting their butts as far as uh, flying. And they're in a a very high-risk environment. And they're teaching people how to land all day. And they have some incredible knowledge. And there's, there's nothing more valuable than a really good flight instructor. And as far as the other costs, uh, you can look at fuel costs, and they've gone up even uh, higher than, than most other things out there. Do you agree with that, Tom?
1: Yeah, I think that's true. And I also noticed something. a lot of the airports around where I live, the uh, facilities that are doing training are flying pretty new airplanes. And i got to think there's a hefty note that comes with uh, you know, purchasing an airplane for a flight school that's got all these new fancy avionics, and, and that's great to learn on. But you know, if you're going to teach in a more expensive airplane, you're going to have to charge more money.
0: Yeah, that's true. And and they're they're very expensive and uh that's uh well and then he actually continues on to talking about that. So let's keep reading. It's uh he says, "It's easy to blame the lawyers of the 1970s and 1980s for putting the Wichita companies out of the business of producing training aircraft, and that is his opinion. We still have nowhere near the economies of scale of production that we had during the golden era of the 60s and 70s." I agree with that. He doesn't think the LSA-slash-sport pilot revolution uh, started uh, in the about 2004 has lived up to the expectations we had anticipated 10 years ago. Is this simply because a plastic plane still needs to sell for 100000 to turn a profit at the current low production levels? You know, one thing I do want to say about the light sport aircraft is that I feel... That it has been a success. Um, as some of you know, as a matter of fact, I'll make this announcement now. I've asked to be uh, one of the correspondents for Sun and Fun Radio at the US Sport Aviation Expo in January in Sebring, Florida. Now, that event last year was terrific. The type of person that goes towards a light sport aircraft a lot of times is the person that's going to look at buying a Warrior or a Cessna costing three, four hundred thousand. For a new one, but now they can get a new airplane with all these avionics. It's only about a hundred to 130,000. Now that sounds like a lot of money. I understand that, but it's still a lot less than some of these other production airplanes out there. And you can still do a lot with that airplane. So I think if you look at it from that perspective, it has been successful. But, but if you really want to do some flying cheap, yeah, you're going you're gonna to wind up buying an older—heck, uh, I did. You know, I bought an airplane that was 1965 model. Um, and, Tom, have you ever flown one of these light sports?
1: I have not, no, but uh, I, I was at an airport up in Wisconsin, I think, this summer, where a guy had one parked next to us, and I went and checked it out, and it was cool. It was an impressive piece of machinery.
0: Oh, yeah, and they have all those advanced avionics, and they look really cool. They, uh, i am actually been looking at a, a light sport for myself, and they have some pretty pretty neat stuff inside there. If you want to go putzing around, it's a great way to do it. It's, uh, you know, hang out, just look outside, fly. The skills of flying a light sport are just like flying any other airplane. Actually, sometimes it can be tougher. I mean, there's some yeah. light in there, a little bit tougher to control. But continuing on with uh, with James' question, he has some really good uh, good discussion here and good questions. Uh, one thing that's become more affordable over the years is the cost of the average airline ticket and the accessibility to the general public. That's a good thing, James. When I look, uh, I took excuse me. When I took my first ride on an airplane in 1977 to visit grandma, residing just three states away, it cost my parents seven hundred dollars per person in 1977 dollars. That's two thousand six hundred sixty one today to board the United Airlines DC-10. If the public thinks that we need to go back to the good old days when we were served steak and lobster with our own flight attendant to pamper us at the cost of eight weeks' worth of wages, this still can be done. It's called first class. And you know what? I think that's very true. One of the things that I think is so exciting about the airlines is that it's, it is one of the cheapest ways to get from point A to point B if you're especially going a long distance. You know, I... I can go to France just as much as it used to cost me to go from Florida to New York City. So now I can actually get to Paris, France. So that that's pretty incredible. The prices have come down and I think that and and the the salaries obviously with the airline pilots have come down a little bit, but it's still it's still a really good uh, career as far as the pay is concerned.
1: And I think, you know, and I think the market has determined that. I mean, you've had how many uh, carriers do you have now versus, you know, 30 years ago? You've got people competing against one another, and when people compete, price can often come down.
0: Yeah, and, that, and that, I think that was a bit of a product of deregulation, and now, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, people say, "Well, gosh, there's so many um, of those airlines that have gone out of business," but you know what? There's some really good airlines that have come out of it. One of them, is, you look at Southwest. I mean, they, yeah. they offer a good, a good value for the money, that type of thing. There's a lot of airlines that have come out of deregulation. Um, let's see, and let's. Uh, here's a good one from James. It's still his last question. He says, "And finally." to beat the dead horse of whether or not a pilot shortage really exists. Most of those in the industry who poo-poo the idea of a real pilot shortage based on the fact that during their tenure over the past 30 years, there just hasn't been one. We've cried wolf too many times over the past three decades with nothing really materializing. What they need to keep in mind is that there are some major factors that have changed that didn't occur during their time in the industry. "'Airline operators will no longer have the luxury of lowering the hiring minimums to 250 hours like they did in the late 1990s. "'The cost of training and access to financial support to pay for training is at an all-time low, and that's very true.'" Just look at the pilot population of 1980. That's over 800,000 compared to today, which is over 500,000. And it's closer to 600, but uh, at, and then further compare that to the number of passengers traveling in aircraft in service. This may just perhaps be the real shortage. Well. Thanks for the comments, James, and I, I really think you brought up some good points, but this is the one I want to take a bit of an exception to. having Because of the fact that I work so closely with all these airlines, especially the regional airlines, I will say this, they do not know, Uh most of them are like, they're not sure what they're going to do once they start having to find pilots, and there's a couple of reasons for this. So let me explain. First of all, uh, the statement about there haven't been any pilot shortages. I've been through a couple cycles in this airline industry. And let's define a pilot shortage. And that's usually when they have to find people with much lower qualifications than before. One of the airlines that I worked for, the time from being hired to to becoming a captain was eight months. I knew people that after a year and a half, from the time they said, gee, I want to be a pilot, they were actually an airline captain. That's pretty scary. I mean, it's amazing how quickly that can happen. Another thing that uh, one of the airlines I worked for, what they did is they were actually able to have captains at lower minimums because they were a part 135 carrier. They were able to operate under those minimums. Remember, years ago, they could do that. They could drop the minimums for the captains. So they didn't have to have their ATP. What's changed? Well, now the government has decided that, Every single pilot being hired by an airline, a Part 121 carrier, has to have their airline transport pilot certificate. And that means that you are going to have to have some hours with you and to get into that airline job. And it's going to be hard to find those people. As a matter of fact, some of the airlines, uh, they were, you know, I know some airlines have made some cutbacks, but they're not actually getting rid of pilots because in this goes into place in August of 2013 They're waiting and they're waiting because uh, some of their pilots at that airline will not be able to fly at that airline after August. So those people have to leave and they're going to have to go out and get their hours somewhere else. But some of the, the the thing is you have a lot of flight instructors right now that have a lot of hours and they're going to have to go out and hire those people with their airline transport pilot certificate. But after that, where are they going to get the pilots? And that, that's been, that's been an issue, you know, because you have another thing that's coming up here. Now, we're, I just talked about the regional side, but those regional pilots, where do they go? They usually go to the majors. The majors, especially some of the, the legacy carriers, I was speaking with a person at uh, who does some hiring with a specific uh, legacy carrier, and he was telling me that over the next 10 years, they're going to hire 60, excuse me, they're going to retire, retire 60 pilots every month for the next wow. 10 years that's about uh, that's over 6000 pilots that they're going to lose. That's a lot of pilots. That's amazing. You're going to see a lot of movement there. What does that mean? That means the corporate pilot that wants to be an airline pilot is going to leave that job. So if you want to become a corporate pilot, that's going to be good. The the flight if you want to become a flight instructor, it'll be pretty easy to do that. So it it is going to happen, uh but but here's something that the caveat here. If you're thinking now that you want to become a major airline pilot, you really have to move forward quickly because you have to get with a regional, get with a major, and go forward. The major is still, uh, there. there's a lot of guys out there with eight, ten to 10,000 hours that are applying for these major airline jobs. They're going to go away, and then, of course, qualifications are going to drop, but it's still going to be competitive to get on with a major. So you can do it, but just don't expect to have it happen right away could be over five years or so so that's that's what i want to say there i know i i don't like to to always talk about this pending pilot shortage it's it's going to happen for those reasons uh because of the retirements and also because of these new rules we're not going to have enough qualified pilots but uh right now it's not happening but it's it's coming down the road and and uh Tom, I don't know if you've done that much research. I don't know if you've been been into the industry and on the pulse that much there, but I'm sure that, that you have a lot of folks that are friends of yours that are looking at saying, hey, I'm going to get out of corporate, go back to the airlines, or, or vice versa.
1: Yeah, I've seen a little bit of that. And you know, I remember as you were talking, it brought back um, – this would have been in the late 90s. I ran into a guy who was at United Airlines, and he had been there most of his career. He was nearing retirement. And when he was hired I, – I don't remember the details of the story, but here's what stuck. United trained him that he was hired as just a guy off the street and the airline actually trained him through all of certificates. And that was his career at United. And I don't know if we'll see those days again, but you know what, comes to mind and this was uh, popular for a while in the late '90s and then it kind of died off and maybe it would be a solution to this shortage I don't know is the idea of the ab initio training you know and you see a lot of foreign airlines doing this where there's a structured program that moves them into the right seat uh, with very few hours but because it was so structured and and I guess maybe um, uh, you know funded and, and pushed by the airline to help them supply labor uh, it seems to be working from you know my 50,000 foot view. Uh, and, and what do you think, Carl? Is that something you would see happening here?
0: I think so as a matter of fact i, I there 's only one little road black and we 'll get to that but the um, I see that like the Chinese I used to do a lot of uh, work with Chinese students and those folks are trained, and they go right into the airline as an ab initio. In other words, they do all the training up front. You, you go in, you apply, just like they do in the Air Force. You apply. Mm, yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, I get questions from people overseas. They go in these cadet programs, and, and yeah, ab initio will help. The only issue that the only change here has been that ATP. I mean, you've yeah. gone from 250 to 1,500 hours now. It's you tough. Know, that's it used to be you could get hired with an airline with two hundred and fifty hours, the minimums. Usually it was five hundred was their minimums and all. Now that's gone up to fifteen hundred. Now you're 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 stuck. I mean you can't you cannot get hired without that.
1: Yeah, that's gonna take some heavy lobbying by the airline associations to change. Maybe.
0: I think what's gonna happen is this, and this is a prediction only and an opinion, is that they're gonna get the airlines are gonna get waivers. Uh, and I yeah. think they're banking on that because right now uh, they're in trouble. I mean, the people that they have flying there right now, they have, I know at one airline, I think one regional was telling me 10% of their pilots will have to leave the company in August of next year wow! uh, because of the... And that that is because they're just not meeting the 1500 hour? Right, because of the new requirement. I personally, I don't personally agree with the requirement of hours. I think you have to look at the training of the person and this came about because of the Colgan 3407 crash Um, but I have I know numerous people in the military. I used to do initial flight training and they will be flying, I know one guy he was flying an F-18 Single pilot at 180 hours. Yep. And that tells me something about the training. So we really, I think, this rule was put in place a bit as a knee-jerk reaction. I think they're going to have to change it at some point. Uh, I do know one thing that they're trying to do now uh, is the possibility of age 67 as opposed to age 65. <laughs> um, the problem with that is that you start running into more medicals. That's another thing. I, mm-hmm. I spoke with this recruiter and he said that what another issue they're having now because of age 65 is that people are having medical issues now which they can't actually fly anymore you know of course you get older you know might start having a minor medical issue uh, and that minor medical issue as an airline pilot that that takes away your license uh something to do with your heart your blood pressure that type of thing so that may or may not increase it but you know think about it that that age 65 was it about 5 years ago when they change that, now all those yeah. people are going to start retiring. And that's what we're seeing, that that one airline that I talked to said that they're going to have 60 a month. That's going to be absolutely incredible. But, uh, but just, you know, it's interesting what you also said about this person as far as getting hired with United. My old boss at my first flight instructor job used to keep an article, and I think it was from the early 60s. I'm pretty sure. Uh, I could be wrong, it, be, it could have been the 50s. There was an ad in the newspaper said that if you're a private pilot, come to United, we'll train you to be an airline pilot. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, I, and, wow. I, you, just like you said with the Ab Initio, that, that may just happen. Uh, because you know, when I when I got hired with the airlines, they just stopped doing the pay for training. And what pay for training was, if you got hired with an airline, you had to pay for your own training at the airline. Mm-hmm. Uh, so your and your training costs would be more than your yearly salary yeah and and so that that went away when they started having a shortage of pilots back then. So that's gonna happen. But you know, I have an article actually on my other blog at Expert Aviator and I'll put the web the link to that. It's called uh, you know, being prepared for the next pending pilot shortages because there's always gonna be one. And it goes in cycles. I mean this yeah. this isn't you know, this isn't the first time it's gonna happen again. And I think it's gonna continue on. So I think you know, it, it, it he brings up some great points, uh James does, and uh I think that uh the cost has really gone up. I think uh one of the things as far as the flight instructors, that's not going to change that much. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's going to stay the same. But I, I will say one thing. I know a lot of folks I fly with now in the right seat, they're paying off student loans at a, you know, $200,000 student loans. <laughs> and now they're flying as an airline pilot making 26000 a year. Yeah. Well, there's
1: hope, though. I mean, if the shortage happens, they're going to move quick. So that's good. You know, it's one one last comment I had on that hours, you know, the 1500 hours is, I don't know if this has been your experience, Carl, but my experience uh, in all the different areas of aviation I've flown is that, you know, the 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 best pilots I've flown with, it wasn't the hours that made them good, it was the attitude, and, and they brought a professional attitude to the cockpit, which made them a good pilot, made them a good stick, made them a good thinker, and... I think there's an element of truth in that you need some hours to get that, but I'm not so sure. Uh, how many guys have you flown with with 10 or 20,000 hours and they scared you a lot?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. You know, professionalism is professionalism. It doesn't matter whether you're a private pilot or a commercial pilot uh, or if you have, you know, a thousand or 10,000. Yeah. Know, that's what you bring to it. That's a great point. That's a great point because someone with 10,000 hours can scare you just as much as someone with 1,000. Mm. But uh, great, great point there. Uh, but moving on along here to get through some of these questions here. Let's see. We have uh, another question from Robert. Uh, it says, uh, hello, I found your podcast from hearing you on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Uh, by the way, I should mention the Airplane Geeks because a lot of these people have heard uh, from me from that. That is a cool podcast. The Airplane Geeks podcast is awesome. They talk about all things aviation. They talk more about airlines, more opinion, and those type of things that I, I don't get into as much on this podcast, and I really highly recommend uh going out there. There's a guy on there, Rob Mark, that has done a really great job, has uh the – professional pilot uh, uh, career guide and book that's an outstanding book. He really he tells it like it is, you know, what it's like to be be an airline pilot. So I highly recommend you going out there and listening to them. It's another podcast. Uh, but Robert, continuing on, uh, I'm a former flight instructor and a 135 charter pilot who has been out of the industry for the past two years, but I'm trying to return to commercial flying. I have, thir- uh, excuse me, 1,530 total time, 1,197 multi-engine, 960 turbojet, Multi and all the c f i ratings, however, I have not flown in the past two years. I am hoping you might be able to advise me on how much recent experience I need to build to be a candidate for a regional airline and Robert, this is a great question. I just had somebody, a good friend, who applied now he was he had a bunch of hours as a regional pilot, and he tried to he had like uh, seven thousand hours. He tried to get on with the majors. he went through the interview and then they realized. He hadn't flown, I think in about seven years, he hadn't flown an airline. And what they told him is that, you know, you need to go back and get some recent experience. Go fly for six months to a year and make sure you have that recency of experience so that you can come back in and start training. I think it's very important to have recency of experience for a couple reasons. Number one, it's going to help you go through training. And number two, it's going to get you back into that environment of flying because you're going to get online and you better be able to work in that whole aviation system that you haven't been working in for the past couple of years. So there's two reasons. I've seen and have had friends that have not made it through training, especially with the regional airlines, because they did exactly what you did. They were out for a few years got back into it and didn't do much flying and got hired with an airline because, you know, your numbers look good, but you haven't had recent experience. And I think the airlines are looking at that now. Or I know they are at the majors, and I and uh, especially at the regionals right now, they can be picky. So I really think you do need to get out there, do some flight instructing, do any kind of flying you can uh, for the next six months to a year while you're trying to get that job. You know, it's easier to get a job and fly in in aviation while you already have a job in aviation. It's tougher if you don't.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think you're right on, uh, Carl, and, and that's probably not the answer Robert <laughs> wanted to hear, but it's true. And I, I think the only thing I have had there is that even with six months, you know, if you go back and you do something for six months, and you and you come to an opportunity with with just a couple six, seven months, eight months a year under your belt, you're showing them that you're serious. It's not just oh, I had an idea and I've got some time. Hey, I'd like to work for you. It's hey, uh, I've got some time and I do want to get back into this. I'm out pounding the pavement doing it. So, yeah, I, I think you're right on, Carl.
0: And that's actually something from a lot of the recruiters I speak to on this show is they will say that is one of the things, no matter what career it is in aviation, uh, whether you're an engineer or whatever, they want to see that, that you're actually interested in what you're doing. You know, why, you're going to have to explain why you left. Uh, and if it's a good reason, that's perfect. Hey, I left. I had to have a baby, that kind of thing. Uh, so that, that might be a good reason, but you really, you really do need to come up with that. The other thing, too, I just want to make sure that, uh, before you do start looking at the regionals, you didn't mention it here, but you need to have your ATP. It used to be that you need your ATP written. I used to always give that advice uh before you get to the airline because it never expires, it usually expires in twenty-four months, but not in an airline. You can use your ATP for as long as you want, but now you actually have to have the whole ATP, actually the the, the flight and everything. So make sure you do get that before you go over to the airline. Don't do what I see a lot of folks do. They <laughs> don't ever, ever lie on your resume. If you say that you have an ATP, it better say airline transport pilot on your pilot certificate when you mail it in because you're going to get caught, you know, and, and I've seen that a few times. Just just don't do it. Get your license, move forward with it. I'm I'm, I'm sure you'll do that and uh, and Robert, good luck to you. I I know you're going to do well. It sounds like you really uh, really enjoyed it and and do miss it. So it's great to see you're back into into aviation. Next question we have uh comes from Terry. And Terry says, hello, my name is Terry. I'm a commercial single-engine land instrument pilot with 500 total time and will have my CFI and CFII soon. That's the flight instructor and instrument instructor. I've been in sales for about 10 years and really enjoyed your podcast about aircraft sales. This is a field that has interested me for a while, and I think with my skill set, I'd be a good fit in this field. I'm working on my instructor certificates right now as A kind of a student teacher. My instructor has paired me up with an instrument student. I write the lesson plans, and my instructor then reviews them. I then teach the approved lesson to the student, and when he's ready, I sign him off for a stage check with the instructor to see how we are both doing. If I could log dual given, I'd be able to log about 25 hours at that point. That's terrific. I like this approach because I found that I really enjoy teaching. That so, uh, gosh, I I kind of love teaching too, Terry. I'm glad to see someone else does too. He continues I have also decided to start my aviation maintenance technician in my AMT training next year at my local college. I've been thinking about this for a year, but after hearing your podcast about how it could make me more marketable as a pilot to have my AMT, I decided to move forward. I just recently found your podcast by way of the new pilot pod log uh, when you were being interviewed by Rob. That's uh, Rob Sigliani of uh, the New Pilot Podlog. He's a real terrific pilot and super good friend now. Uh, I found your podcast informative and empowering. I believe I've been given inside information to make better educational decisions or better, ed- better educated decisions concerning my new career in aviation. Thank you in regards, Terry. Well, Terry, thanks uh, for the kind words, and, and that's exactly what we're trying to do here is is help you get a little bit of inside information. As far as the AMT, it does help, but if you're just looking at a strictly getting an airline job, you know, of course, the uh, the flying. Concentrate on the flying. Make sure you 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 don't forego the flying while you're getting your AMT. Uh, I will say, I know that some corporate jobs and some airline jobs want you to have the AMT, uh, but Tom, I think maybe you might be able to comment on that.
1: Yeah, I would agree with
0: you. If you're going
1: into the airline world, that's where your passion is. Uh, focus on getting in the airplane. Uh, if you do want to go in the corporate world, though, my experience has been that the AMT is a very uh, – and I keep thinking A&P – is a very valuable license for the smaller operators. I know uh, when I flew for the family, uh, we hired a guy who had you know his mechanic certificates uh, to help on the road, and, and that was very valuable. We, we broke down a few times, and he was there and could legally – Sign the airplane off. So, I, I I would agree that's not necessary for uh, the airline world. I don't think, uh, and it, but it, it would add some value in the corporate world.
0: Yeah, and uh, even as as far as the airline world is concerned, I know that it's, a, it's imp- impressive on a resume. It's just like anything that you get that's aviation related. It's impressive. But if you, you, the most important thing, of course, is getting flight time. Uh, yeah. So it is good to have that AMT. And, and I would, I would hang on to that. That's something you could always use. So, um, but definitely, I know there's one cargo carrier out there that flies 747s and they do like you to have your AMT, but, uh but that again it's just because of the fact that they they get impressed by people that uh, have some additional degrees and that type of thing uh but again Terry thanks for the question uh let's see the next one we have is from uh, Dan uh says hello Carl i've uh, recently started listening to this podcast and i'm in the process of catching up from the beginning just a, f- a few questions/comments slash from episodes i've heard s- thus far in episode 15 you spoke with Betty of Betty in the Sky with a Suitcase podcast one point that came up was crash pads and the like and it made me think of uh, was it www.airbnb.com only very loosely related as I understood this is much more like a hotel room than a long term money saving rental however I thought it might be worth mentioning for at least some of the corporate pilots out there Tom or anyone else staying overnight in a city which they don't call home who wants something a bit different than your usual hotel room i'm sure the company takes care of the hotel rooms for you airline guys so that it's probably not really an issue perhaps this is more of a pick of the week for stuck mike uh avcast episode the, the airbnb yeah you know I, I think that's a it's a neat thing if say you're gonna use that instead of a crash pad but uh tom you got you usually don't have to worry about hotel rooms
1: yeah we, we usually stay at a major brand name or you know like uh, if we one of us goes to a hometown we'll we'll stay with family just because we like to stay with family
0: yeah but uh, yeah, I definitely. But we'll mention it, you know, because there might be someone out there. It's called Airbnb.com. dot com. We'll have a, a link to it on podcast dot com. But uh, he continues now. Uh, this again is from Dam, and uh, he says, stemming from the corporate pilot training of. Uh, though the, here it says stemming from the corporate pilot training, I want to say that Tom Wachowski from episode fourteen was by <laughs> far my favorite, <laughs> most like due to the fact that it's uh, he's living the life that I would like to to see myself in. Which I'm brings, I'm blushing right now. Yes, yeah, so so. I'm sure. You, uh, so so you can you can thank him directly, and, and Dan. That that's terrific. Uh, but it sounds like he's really excited about becoming a. a corporate pilot. But uh, currently, he says, I'm taking an online ground school course before I jump into my primary flight training, trying to be as efficient as possible in regards to my training. I've planned to complete the ground training so that I can take some time off work and focus entirely on flight training. Everything I've read slash heard says that the more you can fly during training, the better off you are. What I'm hoping to do is fly seven days a week as I already have a flight school, which assures me that will not be a problem for them. My question is this, is there some point which could be considered too much flying? I understand that some would point out the possibility of burnout with that much flying, but if fuel would allow, I would never come down. I understand that one. (laughs) Just not sure how passengers would feel about that. That is very true. He continues, my 30th birthday is just around the corner, so I'm a bit behind the ball on this, which is why I would like to expedite training without rushing so much that it's bad training. Long-term goal would be to move to a senior position with a regional carrier and do some corporate contract work on the side if possible. Uh, That actually is something that uh, first I'll address, and I'll let Tom address, but as far as flying on the side as a corporate pilot when you're at an airline, that usually is a big no-no. And the reason being is all your hours. You can only fly up to 100 hours a month. You won't get approval. And when you sign a contract with an airline, Almost every single airline says, no, you definitely can't do that. But since you're interested in in a corporate job, I'd let Tom actually answer this question. Well, uh, first of all,
1: Dan, that's really nice of you to say. Thank you. And I will say that um, the path that you plotted out there is so worth it. Uh, If you make it to the corporate position that you see that's right for you, it's a long road. It's an uphill road. And you'll question yourself at times, but it's so so worth it. And I think that if you've got that passion to fly, fly, fly right now, do it. You know, I, I just go up there and get the hours and get the experience and network, and that's what you can do if you're up in the air. So I, I I'm I'm supportive of that. Uh, you know, it's it's okay to take a day off, <laughs> but I'm supportive of uh, while you've got the fire, let it burn and uh, and and make it happen so that. When the opportunity arises, you're you've got uh, you can bring the value that they're looking for and, and get the gig.
0: Yeah, and I, I'd have to agree with that. the The only caveat there is, of course, some people can't handle the flying every day. You might get burnout, especially when you're teaching. I found that what I did is I would teach five days a week, but I would teach all day long. I had a twelve hour schedule, mm-hmm. and I came in at ten, left at ten, and I I never wavered from that. And that way it kept it fresh. I took a couple of days off. It made me actually think about my career. Sometimes when you get too involved in working on something, you can't see the forest for the trees. So you really right. do, you do have to have a day to, to, to pull back there and, and, and think about what it is you are doing with your life. But, Dan, that's a, that's a great question. I, and uh, I, think, I think you have the passion. I think you're going to do just fine uh, flying. You know, it's, it's a challenge. And that's one of the reasons we do it because it is a challenge. The next question we have uh, comes from Ron. Uh, Ron says, I enjoy listening to your show. I've been very interested in hearing different viewpoints on building multi-engine time. I just finished a multi-engine commercial rating at a community college and need to continue to garner more flight experience. I went online and came across some time-building programs. I then read warnings about some of those programs on other websites. They claim that buying time at some of those operations was essentially worthless because many perspectives... Prospective employers view that time as garbage. I talked to an FBO that had a multi-engine available for rent, and there was even more disagreement. I'm confused, and I need to hear from professionals who don't have any financial stake in giving good advice. Well, thanks, Ron, and I think that's that. That was. Uh, it's very important to realize. Number one, multi-engine time is multi-engine time is multi-engine time if it's pilot in command. I have seen schools, I have seen places out there that have three people in the cockpit all logging multi-engine time. Uh, You have to be careful about that. When you're out and you're flying, one of the things that a lot of these places do is they'll have you rent a plane with somebody else. You'll split the hours. One pilot flies. The other pilot is a safety pilot. The person flying is flying under the hood. So again, that's all pilot and command time. Now, here's something interesting that I've seen on some applications online. Some of them will actually ask you to list how many hours you had as a sole manipulator of the controls. That's where you might get in a little bit of trouble with this total multi-engine time. So if they ask you to have a total of 500 multi-engine as sole manipulator of the controls, you might run into some problems. Uh, But again, I I, honestly, the way that I built my multi-engine time is I bought it. Um, Back then, it was my hobby. So And I was flying a twin, and I was basically getting the $100 hamburger. I guess in a twin it's called a $200 hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's how I built most of mine. But you know what? I, I always hate to admit this. I got hired with uh, eight almost ATP standards. uh had 1,600 hours, but I had 76 hours of multi-engine time when I got my first airline job. And yeah. uh, that was pretty darn low. You're not going to see those days, that's for sure. Uh, but, yes, you have to be very careful. But most of the bigger schools... Uh, They have some uh, time-building programs that are are very effective. My advice is get your multi-engine instructor. So every time you're in a twin, you can pretty much be the flight instructor.
1: Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I I was hired with 120 hours of multi-engine time, so very low. Those days, I think um, it's going to be a while before we see those again. But, uh, you know, the paying for time, I'm not an expert on that, but uh, your advice about the multi-engine instructor, I think, is priceless. That is good advice because you can get the time and you're going to learn teaching. That's what I loved about flight instructing. When I flight instructed... I, I don't know, Carl, maybe you could attest to this. I learned more teaching other people how to fly than I ever did getting the ratings.
0: Yeah. Oh, I and, agree. I agree.
1: Yeah. And, and so that, I, I think you're, you're dead on there. Go, go get the multi license and uh, teach people how to fly those twins.
0: I think, and the other thing too is you'll get so used to doing, uh, single engine, uh, procedures that, uh, you know, next time you actually have an engine fail, you do fine. <laughs> but multi-engine time is extremely important. There's a lot of schools out there that still, they hire, uh, folks to be multi-engine instructors and you are flying your butt off. And you'll get sometimes, you know, 500 to 1,000 hours even in a year doing some multi-engine time. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of multi-engine time. That's a whole bunch. That is. But, you know, there's other opportunities too. Like, they'll, there, I've even heard of, uh, what is it? The, uh, a company that used to go out to the oil rigs and do some surveillance on oil, unmanned oil rigs. And mm-hmm. they had a multi engine. And what they would do is they, uh, would send you out there and there'd be a multi engine instructor in the right seat. So that person's building the time and then you would have to pay like half the price or something like that. Uh, so, you know, yeah, it costs money. But, I mean, if you have the money, you know, the easiest way, of course, is, uh, is go ahead and and buy the time. Heck, I had a friend that had a twin. He owned a Baron and he said, "Yeah, he says I could get it easily get hired with an airline." You know, he had over 2000 hours of multi-time. And that's true. That's if you can afford that, though. You know, for the most people, the multi instructor, uh I keep harping on this, always always get your multi instructor because later on you might need it. Uh another just an aside on that whole multi-engine thing. When I got furloughed, I had about 140, 150 hours of multi-engine time. Think about that. Worked for an airline for seven months. That's all I got was about 75 hours. So here I'm at about 140, 150. I couldn't even teach at a local FBO because I didn't have enough multi-engine piston time. Yeah, Most of my time was in a turbine aircraft. Uh, So that was a bit of a conundrum. So the more you have, the more available the jobs will be just in case you do get furloughed. So building multi-engine time is really important. Well, we're, we're right at an hour and I do have one more question to get through. So we're going to hang in there for this last one here. And this is, uh, and I'm glad you folks are bringing these questions to me. And I, I definitely will try to get more of these uh, episodes where we do a- answer uh, many different questions from people. Uh, this one comes from Todd and Todd writes, Carl, no doubt this isn't the first email you've received from somebody pondering a career change. I'm 40 years old and have always had a passion for flying. I obtained my private pilot certificate. Before starting college, I was pr- planning on, to pursue my dream of becoming a corporate pilot when I discovered the FAA's vision requirements. I was crushed. So I left aviation and now am a veterinarian. Fast forward to now. I recently discovered the FAA changed their vision requirements not long after I left aviation. I couldn't believe it. Well, here I am pondering one of the biggest decisions of my life. I never had the same passion for my current career as I do flying. My goal is once again to fly for a corporate flight department. That leads me to this question. Multi-engine pilot and command time is so important for many jobs. With most freight companies out of business, building time as a cargo pilot is almost a thing of the past. How can someone today build the important multi-engine time short of buying it Instructing is one way, but fewer people seem to be pursuing multi-engine ratings. What are some other ways one can build PIC multi-engine time? Well, uh, and he says, thanks, Todd. Well, Todd, you know, it's a good question, and we touched on this, but as far as your comment, as far as people not uh, learning multi-engine, you need to go to the big schools if you want to build a lot of time. Uh, there's a lot of them out there, all ATPs, Action Multi-Engine Ratings. There's a whole bunch of good schools out there. As a matter of fact, I, I'll put a link to some of those. That's a great way to build time. There are people getting their multi-ratings primarily. You're looking at people that have, number one, a lot of money. Number two, want to become an airline pilot. So you're going to see a lot of schools that are going to have that multi, uh the multi-engine there and the multi-engine that they're training with. And if you want to become a corporate pilot, well, you know, Tom has some suggestions, I'm sure. You know, the first thing that came to mind when when
1: you were talking about that um, from Todd is maybe there's a way to combine his current career with flying. I mean, I know a lot of, not necessarily veterinarians, but doctors who have an airplane and they, you know, they're flying humanitarian missions. They're providing medical care in other places and they're using their airplane to go there. Not maybe so much to change careers, uh, but the side effect is that they're getting hours. So maybe he can combine his, his veterinarian work with flying somehow. The other thing that came to mind... Uh, was I, I remember when I was a flight instructor in Michigan and I went in one day and I can't remember why I I didn't fly that day, but it just so happened. And the theme here is going to be networking. It just so happened that a guy came up and he said, Hey, I've got a uh, chieftain and I fly at charter and I got a guy that I need to go pick up and he will not get on the airplane unless there are two pilots. Uh, long story short, I ended up flying with this guy a number of times and he put me in the seat and he said, it's your airplane. Uh, it's your time, and I flew. the You know, I did all the, the planning and flew the trips, and and was able to get time because I was at the airport that day, and I was able to network with this guy that came in. So, short of buying time, it really goes back to networking. I think, uh, you know, to find people who need a guy to move an airplane, to uh, to fly an airplane, to whatever it might be.
0: You know that what you just said about networking is is a really important point, and what's interesting is. Uh, recently we, uh, interviewed Linda Meeks with Girls with Wings and she's a corporate pilot. Said exactly the same thing. Networking is so important in the corporate world. And you just have to go out there and talk to people and network, talk to everybody. You never know who you're talking to. Uh, a good, a good example is one of the airplanes I think is, is my favorite airplane is the B-25. If I could fly that, I'd be in heaven. Of- <laughs> Well, you know what? One day I was doing some volunteer work, and I was relating to this person that I, I love the B-25. And, you know, he had a T-shirt and uh, and uh, jeans on. And he kept listening to my story. And he said to me, he says, listen, um, if you want to fly the B-25, why don't you come by? Uh, You know, I'll let you go up in it when we do some flights. So I said, like, oh, wow, do you work for a museum or something? And he says, no, I... I own the museum and I own the B20. Wow. So come on by and I'll give you some flight time. I was like, wow. So I still got to take him up on that. So you never know who you're talking to. It's all, all about networking. And I think that's, that's an important point that, that she made. It's an important point you, that you made. Uh, and an, another point about his, his career as a veterinarian. I have friends that are doctors and lawyers and dentists that ha- I don't know any veterinarians, but He could be the first one I know that actually work as airline pilots. This one person I know, he is in partners with another dentist. And he's a dentist and an airline Hmm. pilot. Wow. And uh yeah. And and he's at a major airline and he's flying seven thirty sevens and he's making a decent living there. He's making a decent living as a dentist. So he's combining both the things he really loves to do. And you can do that. I mean you really can. And uh you can come you can do anything as long as you have, have the mindset and you have you're creative enough and you can think of different ways to, to do these types of careers. So I, I, I just think you can and most pilots I think are inherently curious and they're a little more intelligent, I think, than most, so that and they're used to studying, so they, they really want to do many different things. And they're type A personalities, so you're gonna find that a lot. I mean, you've probably met a lot of pilots that do more than one thing, <laughs> right, Tom? Yeah, I would say it's the norm. Oh yeah. Yeah, it definitely is the norm. But uh, Well, gosh, that actually wraps up our listener mail. And uh, we went a little bit long today, but I just really wanted to get all these emails finished. I think this has been terrific that Tom's been able to, to bring his perspective here. Uh, you know, our comments on the top ten reasons you should not become an airline pilot. Well, you know what we're gonna do? We'll do another episode on the reasons you should become an airline pilot. Because with these things here, it gives you a a perspective on are these things that I can deal with, and a, a perspective on the the challenges maybe of being an airline pilot. And if those aren't challenges, then you know what? Go for it. You know, and 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 go into the career and, and try it. Because you know what? You don't want to. At the end of your life, say to yourself, gosh, I wish I tried this. I wish I tried that. You know, I'm, I'm one that uh, has tried so many different things. I've uh, owned businesses. Uh, I've actually decided to go out and buy a motorhome and live in it for 18 months. And I've been out on the ocean for weeks of time. It's just you really need to, to enjoy life, enjoy the journey, but also keep focused on that goal. And keep moving towards that goal, and that's very, very important. And Tom, is there any advice you can give to our to our audience about uh, careers and as airline pilots or anything uh, corporate pilots that we talked about here before we do uh, finish up?
1: You know, the only thing I, I, I have to add is, is I thought about it just as you were just talking now, and I recently read an article online by a lady named Bronnie Ware, and I think she's out of Australia, but this lady spent her career last, uh, I forget, long time with people who were dying, and she wrote a book about their, she found some common themes among regrets they had, and she wrote a book about it, and this is what, um, you reminded me of her when you were talking about you know, you, you're you basically, you just have one life, and uh, you should go do what what really lights you up. And in her research and working with these people that were dying, she found their number one regret was that they did not have the courage to live a life true to themselves. And instead, they ended up living somebody else's life. And, you know, that just rings so true to what we're talking about today. If you've got the passion and you've got the fire, you don't want to have that regret that like you just talked about, Carl, at the end, going, man, I wish I had done that. I wish I had done that. Now, there's a dose of reality that needs to be put into that equation, but... This is research that this lady did that people regret not doing things that they wanted to do. So if you want to go fly airplanes, by all means, go fly airplanes.
0: And you know, Tom, that actually, I tell you what, we usually do a recommendation at the end of our podcast here. We're, I'm going to put that at the bottom, and you'll, we'll have a link there. The Top Five Regrets of the Dying, A Life Transformed by the Dearly Departed. And uh, again, that's by Bonnie Ware. And that looks like it. I haven't read it yet, uh, but it looks like a really terrific book like you've described. And, uh, if you could come to com, click on that book if you're interested in buying it. Of course, uh, the purchase does help support, uh, aviation careers podcast here. And, uh, before we close, of course, that's a, a great thing to close with is, you know, pursue your, your dreams. Don't have any regrets uh of course make sure that uh, you do have some reality put in there and you you do it with some wisdom you know don't just jump in and and uh, and do anything and and have a plan and uh you know be responsible but pursue your dreams i think that's very very important tom how how can our audience get in touch with you other than coming here to aviation careers podcast
1: yeah, I mean, the easiest way to reach me is just through email. We can put a link uh, in the show notes. And, uh, and yeah, I've gotten some questions from listeners, and uh, I may be a little slow to respond, uh, especially in weeks when I'm flying. But uh, I'll respond uh, with whatever advice I can give. So, uh, yeah, we can put my uh, email link in your show notes there. Um, that should help
0: out. Great. And, you know, if you have any questions, uh, the audience has any questions, just Go to aviationcareerspodcast.com slash contact. You can fill out the form there. You can find me on Facebook at Aviation Careers Podcast. Find me at Twitter at Flying Careers. All those places you can ask questions. And if you want to uh, leave a voicemail, I have a voicemail line that's recorded. It's uh, 347-MY-WINGS. 347-MY-WINGS. And uh, we take all questions. What we'll do is... Uh, if you do write a question in, I think it would be great to share that with other people. Like I said, I'll, I'll take your name out of that. We'll just mention your first name, and uh, we'll do another episode just like this. Hopefully, Tom, you'll come back and help me out with that. Sure, you bet. Yeah, and and we'll go over some of these questions. I think all questions are good uh, and repeats are good too. Of course, uh, one of the things you have to do is keep reminding yourself as to why you're doing this and how to move forward. Uh, Some of the same questions you'll see repeated, but just with a little bit different way of asking it. Everybody's situation is different. But you know what? I think that if you're here listening to this and you've made it this far, I think that moving forward, uh, you'll, you'll really like this career or... Or the other thing is you might decide this isn't for you. Either way, I, I really uh, am impressed by the fact that you're listening to this and actually discovering whether this is a career for you, any career, anything you do. Just make sure you do your career and have passion for that career and, and you do something that you really love because you know, if you do it for, just for the money – yeah, uh, it's not worth it. You know, you really have to do something you like, and it, and just about everything out there. You, if you put yourself in the top ten percent, you'll make a really good living. Uh, well, again, this is uh, Carl Valeer with Aviation Careers Podcast dot com, and uh, our guest here is Tom Wachowski, and uh, you can find Tom at the uh, easiest way, of course, is at ConsiderateBrands dot com. And uh, he has a couple podcasts coming up, and we'll have links to that website here at aviationcareerspodcast.com. Again, thanks for listening. We'll see you next episode, and safe flying. You have been listening to Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. This aviation podcast is produced by the Valeri Aviation Corporation. Although hosts or guests may receive compensation for products and services discussed in this podcast, compensation never influences our opinion. Before purchasing any product or service, you should always do your own research. Music by Billy Wheeler. All rights reserved.